we do crazy things. Some of them we did the early this morning. Even in the way we dressed. Just so that as we walk by, somebody can look around and say, wow. Wow. You know? And sticking with dressing, we may even have dressed in a very strange way. You know it is strange, but you want to be noticed. And so you do it. So we do some crazy things because of this instinct that is within us. And therefore, many times we scheme, we plot, we strategize. We position ourselves in order to gain advantage over others. I believe it is this craving that led James and John, the sons of Zebedee, to secretly go to Jesus and request him in Mark chapter 10, verse 37. Let one of us sit on your right and the other one on your left when you come into your glory. There were 12 disciples but these two gentlemen, being strategic, being forward thinkers with a futuristic mindset, <laughs> they realize that this man is about to become the king of Israel. And we are not going to be ordinary members of the cabinet. One of us on the left. The other one on the right. And this was something that did not just come impromptu. If you read the scriptures carefully, you will find that there was a family meeting to discuss this matter. Because the Bible says that even the mother came and said, My sons, you know them. Please have one of them sit on your left and have the other one sit on your right. So it was a very serious matter that was discussed at the family level. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 10 verse 41 that when the 10 other disciples heard about this, they became so indignant with James and with John. The reality is that whereas this instinct is in every one of us, Wanting to be at the front, wanting to have the best, wanting to be over others. The strange thing is that when somebody else is in front of you, you don't like it. So it is only when I am at the front when it is good. But when another person is at the front, you feel very indignant. I used to fight with drivers on the road when I was a new driver because the only car that was supposed to be at the front was mine. And so anybody else who was ahead of me, I did my very best to ensure that I overtook them, sometimes at great risk, until one day the Lord spoke to me and asked me, where are you running? Since that time, I learned my lesson. 
Today we want to look at God's invisible hand in the human schemes and plots to be at the front. And we pick up from Esther chapter 3 and we'll go on up to chapter 5. As I said, that's a very long passage. We cannot read it in this sitting. It is assumed that you are already familiar with this story. But we'll read sections as we go along. In this particular section, you'll see schemes and plots. Strategies. People planning to undermine one another. To take advantage of one another so that they can be at the front. The first one is Haman's extermination plot. Found in chapter 3 verse 1. Almost all the way to chapter 4. Very interestingly, if you remember our story yesterday. Mordecai discovered a plot that some people had hatched to assassinate the king. And Mordecai reported this matter to Esther and Esther took it over to the king. And this matter was investigated. The people were, it was found to be true and the people were actually executed. But as you remember yesterday, the matter was forgotten. Nothing was done for Mordecai. Strangely enough, after Mordecai uncovered this plot, the Bible tells us in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, after these events, which events? The ones we read yesterday. King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him as a seat of honor higher than that of all the nobles. And I asked myself, what had Haman done? Was there a typographical error? Shouldn't it have been Mordecai who discovered the plot and reported to the king? But the Bible says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Could he have gone to the king and said, by the way, you know, I'm actually the one who discovered that thing and told Mordecai, but Mordecai just took advantage. Who knows? The Bible does not say and will not speculate. Anyhow, verse 2 tells us that all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. And then the Bible says, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Here is a clash of protocol. And Kenyans are very familiar with these clashes. Historical records tell us that the Persians, in the Persian culture or kingdom, people of equal rank greeted one another with a kiss on the mouth. Yeah. 
someone of slightly lower status would greet a superior with a kiss on the cheeks. If there was a great difference in their status, in other words, you are way down there, and this person is way up there in status, they were required by protocol to kneel down or prostrate themselves before the greater one. So if you met somebody who was greater than you, and I don't know who judged, but you are to judge for yourself and know, you are supposed to fall prostrate before that person or kneel down before them. And so Mordecai's refusal to fall or kneel before Haman was a breach of protocol. Because the Bible says the king had ordered so. Now, the Bible says Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. And I want to say that on the first count of kneeling down before Haman, Mordecai may have been right. Because as worshippers of Jehovah, we are not to bow before anything or anyone. I guess that's why you have trouble with protocol, as people declared yesterday here. In fact, in verse 3 and 4, when the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you not kneeling before Haman? Why do you disobey the king? The Bible says that they themselves report that he had said because he was a Jew. And so as a Jew, he would not kneel before any person. But the Bible says in that verse that he would not kneel down or pay him honor. And on that count, I would want to say Mordecai may have been wrong. Because the Bible tells us that we should give honor to whom honor is due. It does not matter who they are. You may not agree with the way they came into power. Whatever happens, we are to give honor to whom honor is due. And so we may not bow before Haman, but we will pay honor to Haman because of his position. God has raised leaders among us. God has given responsibility to certain ones to have positions of responsibility. And just like the case of Haman, you may not agree with the way they got into those positions. But as leaders, or rather as believers, the Bible requires of us that we pay honor to whom honor is due. This begins with our parents. Your parent may be as bad as bad can be. And I have heard of children, and when I say children here, I don't mean little children only. But I mean even I, I am still a child to my mother. Those of you who came to my graduation one time, you remember how she was asking you, church leaders, and saying, please take care of my little boy. He's only a young boy. 
And our elders were like, what are you talking about? This is our senior pastor. <laughs> You're calling him a young boy. But before her, I am just a little boy. And the God requires of me to pay honor to her. Irrespective of what your parents may be, they may be drunkards, they may be whatever, they may be beating your mother or beating your father, but you are supposed to pay honor and respect them. That goes to the office in our workplaces. I am told that the most disrespectful people in offices are Christians. Especially when they have a fellow Christian boss. They think, you know, you are, you are just my brother. You are just my sister. Especially if they come from the same church. The Bible says, pay honor to whom honor is due. We may not kneel before them because some of them may want us to kneel before them. But we will pay honor to whom honor is due. Let me not stay there too long. And so on that regard, I say, Mordecai may have been wrong not to pay honor to Haman. But he may have been right in refusing to kneel before Haman. But it, again, it is that little thing that I talked about earlier. He may have been thinking, I am the one who discovered. So why is this man elevated? And because of that, he refused. And as would be expected, Mordecai's disobedience aroused Haman's wrath. And so in verse 5 and 6, the Bible says that when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Zaxus. And so we are told, according to verse 7, that in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adam. The drum major instinct. When Haman realized that here was a man who was not recognizing that I am a great man in this place, he planned what he would do. And together with his advisors, they cast the lot and they picked a date. And it seems like Haman schemed for a very long time because this was the fifth year of Esther's reign. Let me tell you, schemers scheme for a long time. They will plan and strategize for you for a long time. We are told that the people who bombed the American embassy here in Nairobi, some of them planned for seven years. Seven years. Some of them came 
married our Kenyans women, settled down and started a family and business. All this while they knew what they were going to do. The ones who struck the Twin Towers skimmed for a very long time. They went, joined a piloting school, got a job to be a pilot, and I understand that to be a pilot of a passenger plane takes a very long time. And to be a pilot of a big passenger plane takes even a longer time. But those who scheme and strategize take their time. And this is where we Christians sometimes we don't we like quick fixes. Here and, and now. We want it immediately. I guess of course because we believe in a God of miracles. And so miracles can happen anytime, you know. Quick. Schemers scheme for a very long time. And so, this man planned for a very long time. But I wonder, why did he plan to kill the Jews? His problem was with Mordecai. Why the Jews? I want to, I saw something here very interesting. How is Haman introduced? He is introduced as an Agagite. Does that ring a bell? Agag was the Amalekite king who Saul spared when God had sent him out to destroy the Amalekites completely. Saul and his army went out and destroyed everything except the fat rams and Agag the king. And so here was now a descendant of Agag. The very thing that God had sent Saul to do and he failed to do is what now the son of Agag wants to do for who? For the Israelites. This descendant of Agag rises up hundreds of years later with a plot to exterminate the Jews. The very thing that God wanted Saul to do for the Amalekites. And I want to say at this point that if you do not exterminate the Amalekites, the Amalekites will exterminate you. It may take a long time, but if you do not exterminate the Amalekites, the Amalekites will exterminate you. When Paul speaks in several of his letters and says, put to death therefore, If you do not put to death, therefore, that therefore will put you to death. That is the reality. 
it has been proven over and over again that those who have not brought their flesh into subjection, their flesh have brought them into subjection. And they have been exterminated spiritually by that which they did not exterminate. If you do not exterminate the Amalekites, the Amalekites will exterminate you. Since we prayed for the constitution, let me say something here. This may be controversial and risky, but I'm going to speak about that in a short while. When you were at Bomas of Kenya during the constitution review process, one of the most contentious issues which remains up to today was the issue of the Cadiz courts in the constitution. The position of many people was and still is that since this thing is in the constitution already, why bother with it? And so we decided to do a research and find out how did this thing end up in the constitution? We found something very interesting. When the first constitution was being made for this country, the most contentious issue was the Cadiz courts, if you didn't know. When the first constitution was being negotiated, the most contentious issue was the issue of the Cadiz courts. We were with Honorable Martin Shikuku, who was a member of the Lancaster House. And he told us that we went to the archives of parliament and we got answered reports from Lancaster proceedings. You would think it was this year. They would go out, they would negotiate, they would come back inside, and the Muslims and the, uh, I was going to say prime minister, then it was no prime minister. Kenyatta, who was the leader of the delegation, it became so tough until finally, Kenyatta wanting us to have our independence, said, let's reach a compromise. We will allow these things to be put here. We can sort it out later. Independence is more important than the, to us to argue over this little thing. We have the documents. It was the most contentious issue. Almost 50 years later, it is now again the most contentious issue. That which was left there for future resolution, the son of Agarik is rising up again. Haman hatched a scheme on how to exterminate the Jews. How did he do this? One was a false accusation. In chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. 
It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. I tell you, these people know how to put their language. <laughs> well crafted. They do not obey the king's laws and it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, it was not the whole of the Jews who had refused to bow before Haman. It was just one man, Mordecai. But now this man goes to the king and says, there are people here. They are not obeying your laws. I don't think it is in your best interest to tolerate them. This was obviously not true. But that's how schemers do. They take a little truth and add with a little something and bring it and say, you know, this is it. And you hear it and you say, is that so? What an honor. If you are a leader, take your time. Do your investigations. Find out. But you know, many times you are so angry because the story has been told to you in a manner likely to prick you where it hurts. And you want to deal with this matter expeditiously. Secondly, he used manipulation and bribery. In verse 9, Haman proposed, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I, king, you do not need to worry about the cost of this matter. I am going to put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men to carry out this business. Now, how can Haman be contributing to the treasury of the country for a national duty? But he said, I personally am going to put in 10,000 talents of silver. I told you that this thing, that instinct, can make people to do strange things. When you want to be the one to be recognized, when you want to be the one at the front, you can do strange things even at a great cost. This man was willing to put in his own money. Besser Taslim. Of course, the king was already angry. And the Bible tells us in verse 9, verse 10, that the proposal worked. The king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. I like the way the writer keeps adding little details here and there. Now he has moved from just being Haman. You remember he was first Haman. Then he was Haman, son of Hamedatha. Then he was the Agagite. Now he is the enemy of the Jews. In verse 10. Verse 11, the king says, Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Basically, the Jews' goose was cooked. And according to verse 12, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. Dispatches were sent by couriers 
to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. That sounds like John chapter something there. Comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This one it says to kill, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. And old women and little children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ada, and to plunder their goods. And this circular was sealed with the king's seal. And you remember yesterday it was the seal of the king of laws of Persia that could not be repealed. The goose was cooked. And Haman felt great. This is the height of that thing I talked about in the opening. You really feel like, yeah, I have got them where I want them. And the writer of the Bible tells us in verse 15 that Haman went to state house. And the Bible says, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. As this thing was being posted on the walls, people would go and read and say, Ay, <laughs> this is terrible. The city was bewildered. But what was Haman doing? Drinking. With the king, none other. A man can't feel any better. I can tell you. When your enemies are under your feet and your head is with the king, you are good. You are good. And so that was Haman's strategy. That was Haman's plot. That was Haman's scheme. Let's go to the second scheme in this story. Mordecai's rescue scheme. The Bible says in chapter 4, verse 1, that when Mordecai discovered Haman's plot, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Haman could not, rather Mordecai could not believe what Haman had just done. And the man went away crying and wailing and mourning bitterly. But beyond wailing and mourning, Mordecai took some action. He appealed to Esther in verse 8 and urged her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. This is what we call lobbying. This is what we call advocacy. Looking for people who are in a place where they can shift opinion. Where they can change decisions. Where they can make a difference. And going out to them and saying, this is the situation. And so, 
Mordecai sends a word to Esther and says, this is what is happening. In verse 11, Esther responds. And she says, and I read verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law. They must be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Basically, Esther was playing politics with matters of life and death. She was using logical arguments when her own people's lives were in danger. And how so easy it is for us to rationalize, to reason, to use logic when our own lives are secure. It is the self-preserving instinct at work again. As long as it does not hurt me, why bother? And you can look for reasons and for excuses as to why you should not be involved in this particular matter. You will reason out. But you know, if somebody puts a chair on your toe and sits on it, you will not say, it is not convenient at this time to tell her. Let, let her finish what she's doing first. Then, then I'll tell her that, by the way, you, you know your chair is, is on my toe. No way. No way. But when it is on another person's toe, then you can say, can't you see she's preparing to do something important? Why? why give her just one second. Esther said, all the officials know. And it was true. She was not lying. She was speaking the truth. Mordecai could not take it. In verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai recognizes God's divine invisible hand in Esther's appointment, in Esther's positioning. It is not you who got yourself there. Yes, you may have been beautiful. Yes, you may have been attractive. But it is the Lord's hand that put you where you are. It is God. There are many beautiful women in this city. There are many beautiful women in this country. But God picked you out of nowhere and placed you in a place of position. And now you are using reasons not to do his will. Just like he did with Queen Vashti. 
God is able to replace you with another one. And so if you are not going to speak on our behalf, let me tell you, we are not going to be exterminated. Relief and deliverance will come up for us from another side. But as for you and your family, God help you. Because we know what God is going to do. And so Mordecai is straight with this young lady. Mordecai is clear with this person. If Esther dishonored that divine assignment, she, like Vashti, Vashti, is going to be replaced. For God's plans cannot be thwarted. The fact is that every one of us has a personal responsibility to serve God's purposes in our own generation. This is what the Bible says of David in Acts chapter 13 verse 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. David did not just float through life, doing and enjoying life. He recognized that God was the supreme reality in his life. He exploited every opportunity to serve God's purpose in his own generation. Every believer must constantly ask him or herself, why has God placed me in this place at this time? What is it that I can do with the opportunities and with the resources at my disposal to see God's purposes fulfilled in my generation, not in another generation? We are talking about the present. We are not talking about the past or the future. Right now, where you are, what is it that God has called you to do with what he has given you? For who knows but that you are where you are today for such a time as this. We are living in a world where wicked men and wicked women are conspiring and have conspired to destroy the very foundations of our lives. Spiritually, socially, economically, intellectually, politically, they are scheming day and night. And the kingdom of God is suffering violence. Some of this is being done in the name of securing freedoms. But it is all a scheme like Haman's, where they are saying it is not in our best interest for these people to continue propagating what they are propagating. But like Lorenzo Magessa says, freedom is indivisible and no one can enjoy freedom if others are enslaved in any way. Therefore, freedom cannot be allowed to be mean to mean the liberty of the rich and powerful to oppress the poor and the powerless. At this time when our nation is going through such devastation, where are our people who have been placed by God in strategic positions? 
Where are the Christian lawyers to stand out for God's purposes in the ongoing constitution review? Where are the agriculturists and economists who, like Joseph, will come up with strategic plans so that we do not continue to go through hunger and drought every year after year when God has blessed you and given you knowledge, wisdom, and skills? Where are the Christians in the media who will stem the tide of evil that is spilling out of our media houses and will stand and say, this is not right. I have told you this before and I say it again. I went for a, a, a meeting of the media owners and practitioners. A few years ago, I was invited to attend. And in that meeting, what surprised me, these are the owners of the media houses in this country. These are the managers of the media houses in this country. And speaker after speaker was complaining on how bad the media in this country is. And so I lifted up my hands and I said, please, ladies and gentlemen, permit me to ask, who is responsible for this? We are here as media owners and managers. And we are complaining. In fact, I remember Kwendo Panga, who is one of key media people here, giving his own personal testimony of how the other night I was sitting with my boy and watching TV and then this thing came and I had to put it off. It is so bad, he said. And I said, surely. So who is putting this thing on our TVs? Who is it? Is it just coming from Yuma Kadabra and there it is, it is in our TV. You know, like the, the, that cow, the calf that was uh, worshipped by the Israelites. You know, Aaron said, you know, the people just gave and we throw it in and now out came the calf. <laughs> out came the, the calf. We, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I, we threw in this and it out came. And yet the Bible says that he shaped it with his own hands. <laughs> and this is what our media owners were telling us. That Kadabra, Kadabra, you know, you just find these things on your TV and you don't know what to do with it. Where are the Christians who will stand and say, this is not right for our society? One of the victims of the Nazi Holocaust wrote the following in his memoirs. When they came for the Jews, I kept quiet because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the communists, and I kept quiet because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I still kept quiet because I was not a trade unionist. Finally, they came for me, and there was no one to defend me. If you keep quiet, one of these days, they are going to come for you. For now, you may feel safe and secure, but one of these days, they are going to come.
the challenge we face today is that there are very few who are willing to stick out their necks. As long as I am comfortable in my palace, and as long as it does not affect me, why should I bother? The final scheme I want us to look at is Esther's scheme. When Esther received Mordecai's sharp rebuke, she was cut the quick. In chapter 4, verse 15 to 16, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Here again, Esther recognized that no matter what the evil scheme that men may devise, if God's people are in prayer, God will dismantle it. She also appreciated the tough reality that sometimes to live for God, you must be willing to die for God. It is not until we are ready to perish that we can rescue the perishing. Those who love the safe and comfortable zone will never achieve anything great for the kingdom of God. For the kingdom continues to suffer violence and it's only the violent who take it by force. When David found God's people trembling at the hands of the giant Goliath, he did not consider the cost of confronting this giant. He was shocked that believers in a mighty God should be standing there helpless and hopeless he offered to take on the giant and save the lives of his people and restore the glory of God in the land. If evil in this country, in our world today, is going to be confronted, we need men and women like David and Esther who will declare, if I perish, I perish. And let me tell you the... Ask John the Baptist when he confronted a king who was an adulterer his head was removed from his neck he was no more and Jesus was only a few hundred meters away live walking on his two feet not like now when he's only available to us in the spirit Jesus did nothing His neck was chopped off. Ask Stephen when he stood against the religious traditions of his time, they stoned him to death. Ask Martin Luther King Jr. 
when he stood against racial segregation. He was shot dead with his dream. Ask Alexander Muge. When he stood against the evils in our own country, he met with an accident. Ask Steve Biko. When he stood against racial discrimination in his own country, he was no more. The threat is real. So when we say, if I perish, I perish, it is not a light matter. It is real. And that's why Esther says, even though I know it is against the law, I am going to do it. If I perish, I perish. Our church has experienced it. When he stood against some things, our own station was bombed. I personally received death threats. And I can tell you, I was afraid. I was afraid. The church wanted to hire for me bodyguards. It was real. So when we talk about these things, they are real. But where are the men and women who will stand up and say, if I perish, I perish. Because in any case, you will not be the first one to perish. Neither will you be the last one to perish. But the fear, the pull towards self-preservation is often so strong. Our selfish nature always hopes that God will call another person to sacrifice his or her life on our behalf. And even though in our hearts and in our minds we know that it, what is right to do, the spirit remains willing, but the flesh embarrassingly weak. I believe that's why when faced with the very prospects of being put to death because of his faith in Christ, Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I know we quote those verses, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It is so easy to quote it when it is you are in the comfort of your house. When you are enjoying a good job and a good salary, it is another thing to say so when the forces of evil are arraigned against you. When the death is a reality, it is very difficult. And yet, this must be the prayer of every man or woman who wants to see society changed. That God will give me sufficient courage so that now, as always, 
Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Christians in this nation, I want to say that we are alive for a purpose in such a time as this. And if we do not stand, let me tell you, relief and deliverance will come from another place. Because the forces are arranged against us. And they are very strong. But we must pray like Paul and say, Lord, give me sufficient courage. I have been amazed. Let me close with this. I have been amazed. As I walk in this city, it is almost impossible to walk on the streets of Nairobi. Because every nook and crack of this city has a certain person. And so, even if I was in a hurry, it becomes very difficult. You go, oh, pastor, praise the Lord. Oh, pastor, it's long since I saw you. And oh, pastor, you know I'm a member of your church. And oh, pastor, every office I go to, every street I walk on, everywhere that I go to. And my question is, why are we not making a difference? Why are we not making a difference? If we are so many as I have realized we are, even in London, I was walking on the streets of London, doing my nice little shopping in a quiet, far distant country where I knew nobody knows me in this land. Somebody meets me on the street. I say, Pastor Oginde. And I'm like, who are you? I go to Valley Road. Are you? If we stood like Esther, I tell you the wickedness in this country would not be there. Esther was one person. Mordecai was one person. But they transformed, they changed, they turned the tide. We are claiming to be 50,000. Surely, we can do something. Where are those who are going to say, I don't care about the nation. I don't care about Nairobi. But in my office, in my office, no wickedness shall be allowed. If I perish, I perish. You are not called to save the nation. But you are called to save that little place where God has placed you. Because you are in that place for such time as this. That's my call to us this morning. Let us pray together. Hallelujah. Father, you who did not care about your position, but you loved us so much that you gave your one and only begotten son that he might come and die for us. 
you have also placed this call upon us that we may be your witnesses wherever we are. I'm praying this morning for every one of us, O oh God, that we would recognize where you have placed us and for what purpose you have placed us there. The Lord, the King's splendor in that palace will not so mesmerize us that we forget those who are suffering and the purposes of God that are at risk. And so I pray this morning for every one of us that Lord you will help us like Esther to make a decision and say it is not in the law. But if I perish, I perish. Because Father, we know that to live is Christ, to die is gain. But many times we don't even have to die. Help us, Lord, for we pray in Jesus' name.